I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. Since Neil Gorsuch was nominated for the seat on the U.S. Supreme Court left vacant by Antonin Scalia, public discussion has fixated on questions of political gamesmanship. Will Senate Democrats use the filibuster to block his confirmation? If so, will Republicans change the rules to force his nomination through? Lost in the shuffle has been the substance of Gorsuch's jurisprudence and how his confirmation might shape how the court handles contested questions in areas like education. I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and today we're going to try to change the conversation. Joining me is Clint Bollock, Associate Justice of the Arizona Supreme Court, and before that, an attorney with a distinguished career litigating constitutional cases, including leading the defense of private school choice programs in Wisconsin and Ohio. Over the past month, he's been poring over Neil Gorsuch's opinions as a federal judge to learn how he might approach the steady stream of education cases that inevitably make their way before the Supreme Court. And he shared his conclusions in an article available now at educationnext.org. Justice Bollock, Clint, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Oh, it's great to be with you, Marty. So eventually I wanna dig into some specific education issues, but let's start with the big picture. You've now read a couple of dozen of Neil Gorsuch's most important opinions as a federal judge. Based on that, what would you say characterizes him? He is a very impressive judge, um, and what I tried to do was to derive from the cases that I read a few of the themes that seem to hold true, because it's so hard to predict what a judge will do as a justice, uh, because right now he is bound by Supreme Court decisions, and now presumably he will be making them. Uh, but if you if you if you derive the themes, uh, I think that you can predict certain behavior on the higher court. And I found five of them that really uh, transcended all of his uh, opinions. The first is that, like Justice Scalia, the man that he would be replacing, he's a, a textualist. He begins with the language of the Constitution or the statute that he is interpreting. And if the language is pretty clear, Clear, he sticks with it. He doesn't go beyond the text to engage various theories of, of jurisprudence, but rather enforces the text. And that sounds like something that all judges do, but but uh, not uh, not all judges do that. And Scalia was a real stickler for it, and he seems to be very much in the Scalia. Um, uh, the Scalia school of jurisprudence. The second is that he is not reflexively deferential to government. There are a lot of conservative judges who begin with a very strong presumption that the government power in a particular case was properly exercised. And while uh, he's deferential to democratic processes, in a number of cases he was willing to strike down exercises of government power as violating the Constitution. So how does, that, how, how does that theme relate to debates over judicial activism? Well, uh, different people define ju judicial activism different ways. And uh, to me, an activist judge is one who is... Uh, 
uh, is going to strike down laws that do violate the Constitution, and there are a number of conservatives who are very, very reluctant to do that. So I don't view it as the pejorative term that a lot of other conservative judges and scholars might. And Gorsuch, I think, basically takes each case as as it comes begins with the presumption that uh the the government is is doing uh the right thing uh but if it violates for example the first amendment and i looked at a number of first amendment cases um he's going to be willing to strike it down and he is actually uh in in one case that i looked at he um differed with another conservative judge on the court, Tim Timkovich, um, in finding uh, ex- excessive government power. And so he's a textualist. He's not reflexively deferential to government authority. What else do you see as broad themes? He also takes a very broad view of standing in a number of cases, including a, a, a finance equity case. He seems to want people to be able to present their cases in court. And there are a number of doctrines in the federal courts that prevent people from going to court, um, most notably standing. For example, taxpayers don't have standing to challenge abuse of taxpayer-funded uh, activities in the federal courts. But so far, uh, in all the cases that I've read, he seems to think that, that if if there's a, a close call, he is going to let people litigate their cases. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to win, but access to the courts is a theme that uh, I've seen with him. Um, he writes, uh, and this has been reported widely, he's a very clear writer, and you can really follow his opinions. Uh, I think he takes a, a very sensible approach to the law. Some of the uh, current justices, for example, go off uh, on things like, uh, you know, human dignity and things that really are not necessarily before the court. Um, Gorsuch is is much more no-nonsense and uh, tends to to write in a very clear way and and not engage in in all sorts of hyperbola or uh, uh, flights of 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 kind of fancy <laughs> fancy writing or fancy notions, uh, and then finally, and this is an area where he is very different than Scalia. He is genuinely and unfailingly gracious. When he disagrees with an argument, he will credit it. He will credit the goodwill of the people who disagree with him, whether it's the lawyers in front of him or or judges with whom he disagrees, and uh, he'll explain why he thinks his position is the right one, but he um, uh, he is not going to punch people in the nose in, in his decisions. Uh, Scalia, by contrast, really was uh, went out of his way in, in many cases to, to denigrate the views of those with whom he disagreed. And I think this may make him an even more effective justice, because if you can disagree without being disagreeable, you'll often win people over to your side. Yeah, some have questioned whether Scalia's influence on the court was less than it might have been because of those tendencies to 
sort of eviscerate those he disagreed with. Of course, others have suggested maybe that's one reason why he's been influential beyond the court, right, uh, by attracting a readership among law school students, for example. That's right. Uh, I, when I first took my son to the U.S. Supreme Court to hear an argument afterwards, he was pretty young at the time. He said, I really like that Justice Scalia. And uh, I had to laugh because of the mispronunciation of his name, but he was a very dramatic guy in oral argument and in his writing and uh, tended to be pretty melodramatic and ad hominem on a number of occasions. And that uh, attracted a, a wide audience, as you say, but it also it has to sting in a lot of cases. So Gorsuch seems to be very different in that regard. Now, let's turn to how Gorsuch's general tendencies, these five themes that you've identified, have played out in the area of education. You start your review in the article with two cases involving student discipline. This is an area in which the federal courts have played a critical, if little noticed, role over the past several decades. What did those cases deal with, and what do we learn from his opinions? Well, uh, there are cases, uh, one of them is has become fairly famous, and it involves uh, burping, of all things. Um, and this is a case where he disagreed with uh, one of his conservative colleagues um, who found that the burping, uh, this, this kid was uh, basically manufacturing burps and dis- really disrupting the class. And the school district or the school called the cops and the kid was arrested. And uh, the decision to do that was upheld by the Tenth Circuit, the court on which Judge Gorsuch sits, and he dissented from that um, that decision, basically saying, hey, this is disruptive, but it's not so disruptive that it should actually be a crime. And uh, there he was very crediting of the instinct of his colleagues, but at the same time disagreed that this should be a crime. And and that's uh, one of the cases where uh, he was was willing to basically say that that the government had uh, overstepped its bounds. Uh, The flip side of that, and this kind of shows that he takes each individual case as it comes. He took a, a case in which um, a student who stole an iPad was uh, resisting um, the uh, discipline uh, and the efforts of, of both the school authorities and a police officer to um, basically calm him down. And he grabbed the student, who was only nine years old, grabbed the police officer's arm, and the police officer applied uh, a twist lock to basically subdue the child. And the student's parents sued the school district. And in this case, Judge Gorsuch said, this is really a sad case. Uh, However, I don't think that the use of force was excessive under the circumstances. And these two cases, I think, uh, even though they're, they're small cases in terms of not, not having huge jurisprudential effect, and they're probably not the types of 
cases that the U.S. Supreme Court would take, uh, nonetheless show that he's a, a sensible judge. Um, he's not deferential uh, to government unduly, but but he is uh, when the circumstances seem to call for it. And uh, also, when he disagrees with his colleagues, um, he's certainly going to uh, uh, refrain from name-calling. Now, another issue that's frequently before the court is special education, where federal judges have been asked to discern what exactly Congress has required of school districts under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. You say that Gorsuch has evinced a serious but modest view of the law's scope. What does that look like? Well, uh, he's had at least three areas involving the uh, cases involving the IDEA, and uh in all three of them, uh, he largely came down on the side of uh, the school district. One of them is perhaps most illustrative, and it involves the issue of private placements. And uh, here we had a family in a very difficult situation um, whose, uh, whose kid was uh, uh, in an IEP in a public school, um, very, very severe um, uh, psychological issues that uh, that led to the uh, IDEA coverage. And uh, the student was making significant progress in school, but could not generalize the behavior in school at home. And as a result, at home was extremely disruptive. And as a result, the parents asked for a private placement uh, in a residential facility. And there are, of course, a, a lot of uh, courts of appeals that have uh, that have approved private placements in a, in a fairly broad fashion. And here, um, Judge Gorsuch said uh, the school was doing exactly what Congress wanted the school to do, and that was to provide uh, a good, appropriate education. Um, but he said that, and, and I'm quoting here, Congress did not provide an IDEA a guarantee of self-sufficiency for all disabled persons. And he went on to say that IDEA has a preference for the least restrictive educational environment that uh, could be found, and that's normally the, the public school. So uh, while he uh, evidenced great uh, sympathy for the parents. Uh, he construed IDEA as being fulfilled in this case without a private residential placement because the child was making uh, progress in, in all areas of the IEP, um, even though that uh, progress was not necessarily being manifested at home. And there would be some judges, I think, who would say, you know, this is such an awful situation. We certainly should uh, interpret IDEA as requiring a, a, a residential placement in this context. Uh, but Gorsuch took a, a more uh, modest view of the statute. And uh, I think, again, as a textualist, he looked to see what IDEA guarantees and what it doesn't guarantee and, uh, and made what, what I think was a sensible decision in that case. Now, another big topic you discuss is religion, where you say that Gorsuch tends to view the scope of the Establishment Clause narrowly and the Free Exercise Clause broadly. 
What do you mean by that, and why does it matter for education policy? Well, of course, the, the biggest issue that it matters for is the issue of private school choice. And uh, the court, in a, a case I litigated, the uh, Zellman versus Simmons-Harris case, uh, that was focused on the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which prohibits the establishment of religion. Uh, free exercise issues, the guarantee of free exercise of religion, um, can uh, affect school districts uh, with regard to using public funds for um, uh, for religious um, students uh, to allow them to, to access uh, uh, Programs or or classes that are more in keeping with their religious traditions and and that sort of thing. So these religion uh, issues impact uh, education in in those kinds of ways. Um, Basically, the free exercise clause guarantees that the free exercise of religion and that government will not interfere with that. The establishment clause is a bit narrower, at least uh, judges like Gorsuch and I would see it that way, because it, it forbids the establishment of religion. And the courts over time have expanded the meaning. A lot of people uh, assume that it says separation of church and state, which is uh, uh, not what the language of, of the First Amendment um, says. And so those of us who are textualists tend to view the Free Exercise Clause as a pretty broad guarantee, and the Establishment Clause as a fairly narrow restriction on government power. And that uh, is how the cases that Gorsuch has dealt with uh, come out. Um, in the Establishment Clause area, he's had a number of cases uh, involving one of the most common constitutional issues that comes before courts, and that is the erection of crosses or uh, the placement of the Ten Commandments or other uh, displays, for example, the uh, uh, the scene of... of uh, of the birth of Jesus Christ in in broader displays uh, on public property, and uh, he has been very critical of his uh, more liberal colleagues on the Tenth Circuit, who uh, have basically uh, applied a reasonable person test to uh, whether these displays violate the prohibition against establishment of religion. And he says that really they're applying an unreasonable person uh, standard, uh, a subjective person who sees uh, religious uh, sponsorship by government in almost anything. And so he uh, has taken a much more restrained view of, of what the Establishment Clause prohibits. I would say that his view is probably more in keeping with the current majority of the U.S. Supreme Court. The Tenth Circuit uh, has been uh, uh, fairly expansive in its view of the Establishment Clause, and as a result, he's been a, a dissenter in a lot of these cases and, and takes a, a more restrictive view of, of what the Establishment Clause prohibits. On the flip Side, he wrote uh, the Tenth Circuit's opinion in the Hobby Lobby case, which was the case involving uh, the um, uh, company Hobby Lobby that wanted to not have to uh, pay for insurance that included um, 
uh, contraceptive coverage as a matter of religious freedom. And he sided with Hobby Lobby, saying that the law, uh, the federal law that protects religious liberty, was designed to protect unpopular dissenters uh, who were following their religious beliefs. And that, of course, is one of the most controversial cases um, in recent years. And uh, uh, he wrote the, the majority decision uh, in that case, um, allowing Hobby Lobby to opt out of the federal law that uh, otherwise would have required them to, to violate their religious beliefs. Now, you started that answer by referring to the Zelman v. Simmons-Harris case upholding the constitutionality of school vouchers. That, of course, was a narrow 5-4 majority, which means a change in the composition of the court could certainly sort of place that decision in question or at least lead it to be interpreted very narrowly. Um, I know your current position as a justice on the Arizona Supreme Court sort of prevents you from wanting to make specific projections, but I think would it be safe to say that Gorsuch's approach is probably similar to the justice that he's replacing in that regard? I, I think so. And, and again, uh, his role as, as an appeals court judge is constrained by Supreme Court opinions, and, and he certainly was acting to interpret and apply those decisions, and I think he was doing so in a, in a very uh, sincere way. But if, if, if those decisions actually reflected his own views of the Establishment Clause and not just the current Supreme Court majority's views, uh, then indeed he would be um, in keeping with the majority in, in Simmons-Harris. And that's, that's an issue that, uh, uh, you, as you know, was five to four. Um, but the four justices who dissented uh, were rather histrionic in, in, their, uh, in their dissent, uh, comparing or predicting that uh, if the court upheld school vouchers in that case, we would see religious strife uh, of the type that we've seen in Northern Ireland and, and Bosnia. So it was not just a mild disagreement. It was quite, <laughs> quite a passionate disagreement. And uh, so certainly um, that issue uh, uh, is very divisive on the current court. Now, the final aspect of Judge Gorsuch's record I want to ask you about is the one that's actually received some media attention, and that involves the extent of discretion executive branch agencies like the Department of Education should be afforded in interpreting federal law. You note that this is an area where Gorsuch, despite his role as an appellate judge, has actually been quite critical of a key Supreme Court precedent. So help us understand this issue and what its implications would be for education. Well, about six months ago, Judge Gorsuch did a, a fairly unusual thing. Uh, well, and for him, I believe it was unprecedented. Um, he had in front of him a case involving a very obscure um, regulation from the Board of Immigration Appeals. And uh, basically the question was uh, whether the Board of Immigration Appeals in interpreting um, federal immigration legislation uh, could actually overturn uh, judicial opinions um, that were 
contrary to its own interpretation of the law, and to do so retroactively. And you know, I mean, this is a, a pretty uh, a pretty broad uh, exercise of of regulatory power to actually overturn a court. And Gorsuch noted in his majority opinion, saying that they could not do this. That indeed, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has upheld the power of regulatory agencies to overturn court decisions, but he said that they could not do so retroactively, and that was the issue before him in this case. But what he did that was so extraordinary was then he wrote a concurring opinion, agreeing with his own decision, and uh, took off uh, after a doctrine of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, called the Chevron Doctrine. And the Chevron Doctrine says that if a federal statute is ambiguous, that the courts must defer to the agency administration or the agency interpretation of that federal law. And that has been a doctrine that's criticized because uh, it places in in the hands of unelected regulators uh, a tremendous judicial power and, uh, frankly, a legislative power as well in many instances. And Gorsuch uh, was very broadly critical of the Chevron doctrine and how it's been broadened over the years. So I think um, this was an indication of his his personal philosophical beliefs. It was probably the deepest glimpse into his personal jurisprudential philosophy of any decision that he's written. And I think uh, that he is very critical of the power that both the legislative branch and the judicial branch has ceded, have ceded to regulatory agencies. And that could have, um, you know, if, if his views were to prevail, that could have a huge impact on uh, agencies like the Department of Education in terms of their interpretation of, of ambiguous federal law. And of course, one of the complaints that's been lodged against both of our past two administrations, both the Obama administration and the George W. Bush administration, uh, their departments of education, is that they've interpreted federal statute sort of broadly as empowering them to use regulatory authority in new ways that uh, Congress hadn't specifically contemplated. That's right. I think it's a complaint lodged against almost every federal agency. And so this this could have a, a very, very significant effect. And it's an area where he, again, may disagree with Scalia a bit. Uh, Scalia uh, believed in this in the Chevron doctrine, although there were instances in which he felt that uh, the agencies had gone too far uh, in actually taking on the legislative power. But Gorsuch has announced in advance uh, that uh, he thinks that the uh, judicial decisions allowing agencies to to go um, far beyond uh, a, a purely administrative role um, that that uh, that that should be reined in, and uh, so I suspect he'll get a lot of questioning on that uh, on that issue. Well, Clint, I started the podcast by noting that much of the discussion about Gorsuch's nomination has focused on the politics rather than the substance. I want to thank you for definitely helping us elevate the level of conversation today. 
Well, he would uh, certainly be replacing a Titan, and uh, uh, he definitely seems like uh, he may he may be more than most ordinary mortals up to the task. My guest today has been Clint Bollock, Associate Justice of the Arizona Supreme Court and former constitutional litigator. You can find his article on Neil Gorsuch's education jurisprudence online now at educationnext.org. Clint, thanks for the article, and thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And if you're listening through iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.